Yeah, it's a Okay, that's good to see everyone. Um, if there are any apologies. Um, Okay, let me let me open us in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time we can spend together. We we just pray for those who are not here, especially those who are not well. Please be with them, please comfort them and heal them. And we ask that you would be gracious to us as we study this this incredibly important book, this incredibly encouraging and helpful book. As we look at the Psalms, the the, the hymn book of the church. Please teach us, please conform us more into your image. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Psalms. Um, <clears throat> just a wonderful, wonderful book. They, they, the Psalms cover, cover the full range, the full gamut of all human emotions and experiences. And we'll have a look at some something of that this evening. So from the lowest lows to the highest highs, there are appropriate psalms to to each one of our experiences, and it's it's very helpful, especially if you find yourself depressed, downcast, to go to the psalms. Uh, and we're going to look at hopefully different different aspects of the psalms that will help you in your in your reading and your study of them, okay, looking at different literary devices that the, the, the psalmists use. Okay, Psalms uh, comes from Greek, psalmoi, and literally means uh, to pluck a stringed instrument. Okay, so that's that's what it means. But it's come to mean in our in, in just the way that we use the word psalm, it means a song of praise. Okay, and that's that's really what the Hebrew word is. Uh, the Hebrew word is Tehillim. And it comes from the root is Hallel. What does that remind you of? You see Hallel? It reminds you of? Hello. Hello. Oh, food. <laughs> hallelujah. Okay. So, you know, people say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Well, then you know a bit of Hebrew without even realizing it. Okay. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. So, Hallel is praise. And Jah. So, if you. We're Rastafarian, <laughs> and you know Jah is, is Jehovah. Okay, it's Yahweh. So, it's praise the Lord, and it's the root of this word. It's, it's praises, okay, to sing praises, and that's what the book is. It's it's a it's a book of praises to the Lord. Calvin and Luther said the Psalms are a mirror. Okay, so they they show us what we look like. Especially in in terms of our emotions, Calvin says this: I have been accustomed to call this book 
I think not inappropriately, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Okay. And that's a, that's a good way of putting it. The anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And so, as I said at the beginning, it covers the full range of our experiences and what's, what, what we go through in, in, in our souls. Okay, so Hebrew poetry is quite different to, I'm going to say English poetry. I don't know any other, maybe a little bit of Afrikaans poetry. Um, but I don't know all different cultures, the way they, they do poetry. But in English poetry, rhyme plays a huge role, doesn't it? Uh, if you're familiar with English poetry. So it has a, just a silly example. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. He put her in a pumpkin shell and there he kept her very well. Okay. So that sort of reminds you of, you, you get it, you enjoy it because of the rhyme. Uh, the way the words end, uh, Peter and Peter and pumpkin eater and couldn't keep her and shell and well. And, uh, and so that's most English poetry uses rhyme okay, to, to, uh, to great effect. However, Hebrew poetry is not like that at all. Okay, there's, there have been a lot of attempts to try and find some sort of um, rhyme within Hebrew poetry, and none of them have been successful. Okay. So what Hebrew poetry uses, primarily, um, is parallelism. Okay. Parallelism. So what we mean by that is there is a line, or a, sometimes called a colon, and then another line, another colon, and let's say this line is line A, and this line is line B. Then line A and B are parallel to one another in terms of what they're saying. There's different types of parallelism. Okay. Now. It's wonderful that the Lord has done it this way because if you if if you try and translate poetry, okay, so if you think of, of English poetry with rhyme and you had to ch translate it into Zulu or into Greek or something else and try and keep the rhyme, it's virtually impossible, isn't it? Okay, you you you, you can't do it, and so. If, if Hebrew poetry was full of rhyme and then it had to be translated into all these other languages, we would lose a, the beauty and the real power of it. Okay. But because it's written in this way, using parallelism, you can it's, it's translatable into any language. And that's God's, that's God's wisdom, of course, isn't it? So that we don't lose any of the beauty and the meaning of the poetry, even in translation. There are, there are things like uh, alliteration. What's alliteration? And what's assonance? Okay, so there is that in Hebrew poetry. Uh, so you do find that in Hebrew poetry, and sometimes sometimes the translators try and, and keep that in their translation. And so they try and find words like it all begin with T or something like that or have similar sounds, but it's quite difficult. It's normally the NIV that will try and do that because the NIV is a, a dynamic translation. And so there. Um, 
Okay. It's called dynamic equivalency. So they they they're going for the meaning rather than the the exact words. Okay. So you get there's a spectrum of translations moving from strictly literal to very dynamic. Okay, so you would say so if it's like literal word for word, you'd put like the NASB right there. They try very hard to just give you the right word. That's why it's quite difficult to read. It's very wooden. It's like <laughs> because they're um, they're just trying to give you every word exactly. Okay, um, and then you move along. NIV is very dynamic. They're trying to give you the meaning. Okay, so they're they're, they're they're looking at the idioms and saying, okay, what is the what does this mean for us? Um, and then you know, in here to different degrees, you'll have the ESV and King James and things like that. Okay, so uh, they do try and do that. So just an example of, of that, that those that those uh, devices. The earth is without form and void. In the Hebrew, it's tohu vavohu. Okay, can you see how the that sort of it's quite poetic. You're saying that. Okay. Um, it's very interesting that that uh, poetry is used in a powerful way to to affect people emotionally. Okay, that's that's really the purpose of, of poetry and songs. So this is poetry, but uh, we can also sing it, and the church, God's people, have sung it for thousands of years. But its intention is to change us emotionally. Okay, it's to affect us emotionally. Um, now, if you go and find, if you go and research pagan literature, it's all poetic. Okay. Why do you think it's it's primarily poetic, as opposed to what we call prose or narrative. It definitely yeah, poetry can help us to to memorize. Yeah, is it something to that, Tiani? No historic basis. Yeah, that's it. It's not true. <laughs> okay, so you can't give a narrative. You can't tell this is the story of when it never happened, but you can put it in poetic form. Okay, so um, we saw with there's, there's examples in Exodus and in Judges where you'd have the narrative and then the the poem right next to each other. Okay, and so we were able to see. So we don't just have a book full of poems that's just very nice, but it's not based on any reality. Uh, we have we've just we've gone through the historical books, and now the poems are written during that period of time, and they're looking at the emotional side of those real experiences. So 
you know that many of the Psalms are written by David, and we often know when in his life it was written. So we're going to look at Psalm 51, when he had sinned, and so uh, it's important. Okay, so let's look. Let's go back to this parallelism. Okay, now scholars have have studied this um, and come up with trying to break down different types of parallelism within the Psalms, and you can just sort of go on ad infinitum. Uh, but there seem to be some main groupings, and I'll just give you the names. We have synonymous parallelism. Uh, climactic. And antithetical, or antithetic. And there's some others as well. Okay, so turn to Psalm 103, verse 10. Okay, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's, let's remember, that's A. Nor, de, nor repay us according to our, our iniquities. Can you see how A and B are pretty much saying the same thing? Mm. Okay, so what would you put that under? Synonymous parallelism. Okay, so line A and line B are, are sort of repeating the, the same thing. Um, climactic parallelism, turn to Psalm 93. Climactic, it's also called, sometimes called stepladder parallelism. So the idea is that each line is building on the previous line, adding something more, okay, and building up to sort of a crescendo. Uh, and, and we'll see there's, so it doesn't only have to have two lines, it can have three lines or even four lines, but normally just two. But Psalm 93 verse 3 the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. So you see how it's it's repeating, but it's building. Okay, and and you even even in the way it's done. This is the beauty of of good poetry. The repetition has the idea of flooding. Okay, <laughs> you almost get the idea of water rising. Okay, um, Psalm 92 verse nine, <coughs> 9 If you just turn back. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your <coughs> sorry. For behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. Okay, so behold your enemies, what's then what's going to happen to the enemies? They're going to be scattered. Uh, so they're going to perish, they're going to be scattered. Okay, and so building. Uh, Psalm one forty five, verse eighteen. So this one just says if it just has two lines, they sometimes call it a bicolor. 
put three lines, it's a tricolor. This one has two lines, Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. So you see how line two is adding extra information. Okay. So it's not just that the Lord is near to those who call on Him, it's those who call on Him in truth Okay, that, that He's near to. Okay, just go two verses ahead to verse 20. Here we're going to see antithetic parallelism. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. Okay, so you see the uh, preserve. What's the opposite of preserve? Destroy. Uh, those who love Him. What's the opposite of that? It's the wicked. Okay, and so they're they're set in contrast of to each other. Here's another one. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Okay, so again, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, between the one uh, not paying back and the one being generous. Okay, and so uh, now when you when you you don't need to memorize these things, but it is helpful just to know about parallelism. Okay, when you read through the Psalms, you'll start to see it. Okay, and it is sort of fun to see, okay, what type is this? Is this synonymous or antithetical or uh, climactic? <coughs> now, as I said earlier, guys can carry on and they make, they, 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 you get a synthetic one, synthetic parallelism, or it's also known as the, like the garbage can parallelism. Okay? Basically saying, if you can't put it in these categories, you just chuck it in there. Okay. <laughs> so... <coughs> Somebody else has come along and said, no, you shouldn't have all these categories. Either Hebrew poetry is of a hundred sorts, or it's, or it's of one sort. Okay. And he says, Hebrew poetry or parallelism is A, what's more, B. Okay. And so what he's saying is, it's line A, what's more, B. Okay, so B reinforces A, even if it fits into one of these. And so I think he's right, this is true, but it, these are helpful, just distinctives as well. Okay, so A, line A is sort of like if you're hammering a nail, you know, your first blow is just to position it in the right place and then your next blow is to hammer it in so that's sort of the idea the first line is just to position it and then the second line and the third line reinforce that position even in antithetical because it's saying the opposite okay and but it reinforces the first statement does that make sense okay. Well, he's dealing with parallelism. Okay. So it's just a, he's just saying line A, and what's more, line B. Okay. okay. I, uh, I don't know exactly what it's, what he it's called. He didn't He didn't get around. It, well, he, the, um, uh, what's, I think his name is Ferguson, the guy, um, not, not Sinclair Ferguson, it's another Ferguson. Is this for me? Oh, thank you. 
<laughs> um, uh, Ferguson's rule or something we can... Uh, Okay, so any any questions or comments on that about Hebrew poetry? Of course, there are a lot of other things, other other devices that are used. Uh, you get personification. What is personification? Okay, so. <coughs> Personification is frequently used in Scripture. Okay, so Paul Paul uses it as well. Um, he will personify sin. Okay, and remember, the Lord does that in in Genesis. Sorry, who's that? The Lord is Okay, with respect to the Lord, yes, personification is used, um, but that's not. Uh, it's a slightly different thing because God is a person. Okay, we have you, what we call anthropomorphism. So that's where you give it, where you give God human. What's morph? Morph is shape. Okay, or that's so human anthrop anthropology is a study of humans. So you give him human shapes. So the arm of the Lord, things like that, and then you get anthropopathism. Pathos is. <laughs> um, uh, so if you describe that actor, that actor was full of pathos, it's sort of emotion. Okay, it's feeling. So that's the. So you're giving God human feelings. Okay, that's that's also another another aspect in scripture as well. Um, but what's what is used? So remember in in Genesis. The Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Okay. Now that's sin is not a person. Okay. So, but yet it's such a powerful picture, isn't it? Because you immediately have the idea that sin is sinister, <laughs> uh, that it's it's seeking to to catch and to overpower and to hurt. Okay. And so just by saying that, sin is crouching at the door. You, you get all that theology without even without having to kill a whole lot of trees to write it all down. Okay, so uh, it's wonderful, and that's the wonderful thing about Hebrew, all about all poetry, but Hebrew poetry especially uses that sort of language. So there's personification, there's simile and metaphor. What's the difference between simile and metaphor? Okay, so um, uh, Satan goes about like a roaring lion is simile. Okay, the Lord is a rock is metaphor. Okay, and so that's frequently used, and again, the, all of that is just by saying that you get a whole lot of. Talking about the difference between simile and metaphor. Yeah. The effect of, of, of 
like linking the devil to a lion and, oh, yeah. and linking the Lord to a rock. Yeah. You you get a, a rich image of what they're that the, the devil's dangerous and powerful. Uh, the Lord is solid and steady and immovable and needs nothing and all of those things uh, instead of instead of just having it written out dryly for us. Okay, so uh, be on the lookout for those things as you read the psalm. It will certainly help <coughs> enrich it for you. And the more you, you, you're aware of these things, uh, it, it, it certainly does make it more enjoyable. Okay, so we now come to the actual, the actual book itself. And the book is divided into five sections. Okay. How many psalms are there in the Psalter? 150. So it's 1, 2, 150. And it's divided up into five books. Um, first book is from 1 to 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to 150. So those are the five books. Uh, if you turn to chapter 40, uh, to Psalm 41. And you just go to the last verse, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And then, I'm sure your Bible says, book 2. Say that? Okay. Now go to Psalm 72. Verse 19, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Then it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Book 3. Okay, so that the every single book will end with a benediction and an Amen and Amen. Here it says, This is the end of the prayers of David. And yet there are another 18 Psalms of David after this. So what's going on? Well, the Psalms are not in chronological order. So it's not as though Psalm 1 is the, the oldest Psalm and Psalm 150 is the youngest Psalm. What is the oldest Psalm in the Psalter? Which is the only Psalm that we know Moses wrote? Oh, 91. Uh, 90. 90. 90. Yeah. So that's the most ancient Psalm that we, we're aware of. We know Moses wrote it. And clearly it's not in chronological order because it's number 90. Okay, it's not, not number 1. So this division into these books was done later on. And it was done by the worship leaders of Israel. Okay, Okay. so the worship leaders don't think guys with long hair and <laughs> slops. I suppose they would have had slops. They would have all had slops. Eh? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And... Um, and just sort of leaving after the music. Uh, <laughs> they were all brilliant theologians, okay? The, the, the worship leaders. Uh, and it was a very, very important position. 
so when they did this there was a reason now we haven't well from what I've read and, and what I've heard from people far cleverer than me we haven't we haven't found a proper key yet to understanding these five books there's there's certain theories that are quite nice and may have elements of truth to them um, so you can find certain aspects of David's life that seem to 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 uh, build a story but you can't make hard and fast rules about each book okay so we we still feel that there's more work to be done in this in this field and so maybe one of you could do that one day and find out aha uh -huh, this is the key <laughs> uh, book one is this book two is this book three book four book five um, but there are some interesting things as I said, the end of book two, it says these are the end of the prayers of David. Okay, so they must have taken, at that time, maybe it was the end of David's prayers, but then they found some more. Remember, remember, parts of the Bible are lost for periods of time, and then they find them again, and then there's all sorts of things going on like that. So, <clears throat> we don't know exactly why. However, there is a general progression. Did you want to add something? Last question. Yeah. Um, sons of Asaph were actual people. It wasn't there, it wasn't like another term for David. Sons it's it's not. Asaph. It's Asaph. Yeah. Asaph was a real. Well, yeah, a real person. It was the sons of Korah. Sorry, sons of yeah. So, but Asaph was a real guy. Yes, he was a. Fifty is 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 by Asaph, but it, but in this book it says that it was composed of prayers of David. Um, so, so or that section. I think they're saying that section. Okay. There's also that's another interesting discussion about the superscriptions. Okay. So can you read the superscription there for me about Asaph? What does it say? In Psalm 50. Oh, oh. So it's not Psalm 72. No, no, no. I was saying, yeah. I was saying Psalm, Psalm 50 is, is a part of the second book. But it's, but it's not, uh, it's not right there. Um, no, yeah, I think, yeah, so what it's just saying is that they're saying Psalm 72 or whatever is the last one David wrote, or the last one that we have of David. Um, but remember, they, they edited it, so it would have been, maybe, it's like if you have, presume hymnals work like that, I don't know, but I think so, you have hymnals get updated. So, at the time of David, there would have been 30 psalms in the, in the book of Psalms. Okay? And then they would, you know, David died, and so they say this is the end of David's psalms. And then they, Asaph writes psalms, the sons of Korah write psalms, and other people write psalms. They maybe discover some more of David, and they put them, then they decide, let's move them around and put them in books. Okay? And so that one that said these are the last, this is the last of David's psalms ends up at the end of book two or something like that. Um, I think that's what's what's going on. So it's being edited in its structure. Um, <coughs> there are there are different groupings of psalms. So you find within the Psalter you get different groups. So you get what we're doing at the moment in church, 120 to 134, is the series, the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, 
from 146 to 150 are the Hallel or final Hallel. Remember what does Hallel mean? Praise. Okay, the final praise. And then there's another one from 113 to 117 or 118, depending on who you read, called the Egyptian Hallel. And that was, and I think is read at, Passover. And so it's good to go and read that, go and read those Psalms and imagine because Christ singing them on the evening of his betrayal. Okay, uh, It's very, very, very powerful. Okay, Because they cry, he's crying out to the Lord, trusting the Lord in the midst of betrayal and imminent suffering. Okay. So you have this. But the last group of psalms are all praise psalms. So just let's turn to 146. Very, very powerful. It's just total focus on praise. Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Psalm 147, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. 148, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts. Psalm 149, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. And 150 says, Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens. Verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay. So, you have this explosion of praise at the end of the Psalter. The beginning of the Psalter begins with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, obviously. And they, they go together, I'll argue. Um, they're two separate Psalms, but they're, they're meant to be together. And that's Psalm 1 is the, the, the gatekeeper to the Psalter. Uh, and it sets up the... the the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Okay, so they, that's the entrance to the Christian life, and then Psalm 150 is the conclusion, if you could say that, of the Christian life. It will be an eternity of praise, won't it? Okay, that's how it's going to end for us. It's going to be an eternity of, of joy and happiness and worship. Okay, and so you could see something of the Christian life entrance, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, and then all the experiences that we'll go through, all the sufferings, all the, the lows and the highs, and then it ends with with praise and worship and everything will praise the Lord. And so that's a broad overview. Some interesting differences, you find some repetition, so if you go to Psalm 14, says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man 
to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And carries on like that. Turn to Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And carries on, it's the same. But there is a one difference. Did anyone pick it up? In the second verse. which means it's God's name, okay? And then God, so this is Yahweh. God is just L. Okay? So one argument, and I, I find it quite compelling, so that's why I share it. Because um, in book one, the covenant name of the Lord is used frequently. In book two, it's not. And you have, as, a, as you can see in Psalm 14 and 53, you even have repetition. Now, the argument is book two is more evangelistic. Okay? Um, and the reason for that is, is El is a generic name. In fact, it was the name of the Canaanite god. Okay? El. And God uses it for himself. Okay? He uses that, that name. So you go and you, you remember Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. They go and uh, they, they share God's truth and they sing songs. And they say Yahweh. It means nothing to a pagan, isn't that right? Who's Yahweh? But if you use the word El, they understand that's God. Okay. Just as God refers to himself in the Bible as Baal. He calls himself Baal. Okay, and remember, there's a false god called Baal. Okay, means father. Uh, and in um, uh, in Zulu, hey, god is yeah, which was a name for also the, the gods of the Zulus, hey, or the, then in uh, Muslim areas, Allah. Okay, and Christians. How do they evangelize? I want to tell you about the real Allah. Okay, uh, And so, I know it sounds, maybe if you've never heard this before, it's like, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, but it's not. It's a wonderful, it's God's gift. Okay, It's actually a connection with people. Okay, Because they, they understand something of the terminology and the name, but now you're showing them who the true Kulunkulu is, who the true Allah is, who the true El is, who the true Baal is. Okay, and so that's that's one argument for these changes in book two. That book two is more evangelistic. Okay, so can you see how uh, it, it requires a lot of wisdom often evangelizing? Okay, so um, you just go and tell people about Jesus. It might be a 
depending on where they are and in the cultural setting, it might mean totally, absolutely nothing. But they they will all have an idea of a god or gods, okay? And so then you're able to say, well, let me tell you about the true god, okay? Uh, and so we understand that in English, god is the same word. We use the same word for god as false gods as the Muslim God and the Hindu gods and we, and so it is in, in all the languages. Does that make sense? Okay. So remember God is uh, does not have an inferiority complex. Okay. He's not uh, he's totally cool. Okay. He's not um, threatened by false gods. So he's so gracious in meeting people where, where they're at, even in their, their blindness and their foolishness. Uh, Michael, so you're saying Logan uh, Jacobs is the covenant name, and then God is like literally just referring to a God in a sense? Yeah, we know in Scripture it's referring to the true and living God, but it's a generic term. Okay, so it's... Um, um, it's not. It's you know we know depending on the context if it's referring to the true living God or if it's referring to the gods of the Babylonians or whatever it is. Uh, but it will be the same word that's used. But you'll never have the Yahweh of the Babylonians. Does that make sense? Okay. There's only one Jehovah, one Yahweh. So that's his covenant name. Those who've entered into covenant relationship with him, who know him. Okay. <coughs> but as you're trying to win people, you you you're not compromising. Remember, this psalm is not compromising. The fool has said in his heart, "There is no God." Okay. But it's you're able to to connect, and then hopefully draw them along to come to the realization of who the Lord really is. So that's just between book one and book two. Any questions or comments about that or anything so far? So the, the, the Jews, I mean, they're just their life, the life of the, for the whole time. They only ever sung. They only sing once in the Psalter. In the when they go to synagogue and that. I'm just yeah. I'm just saying in the life of the Jews, um, in terms of their worship, they only sing once in the Psalter of the day. I don't know. We don't. Know. We don't know. No, I'm sure that's an easy question to answer. I just I don't know the answer. I've never thought of it. Like I, maybe I, do you know? Really? I don't know in the synagogues what they do they sing? I'm sure they sing, they love singing. Yeah, um. yeah I don't know if they only sing songs. But even in even, even in the time when before they were like say when they were do we have any inkling of was it just songs just singing or songs or anything like that? We just I don't know. I don't know. Probably at most times it's just the so many the ones that we have. 
I, I don't know. Be, just give me a guess. If I said anything. Okay. So now, within the Psalms, there are different categories of Psalms. And again, you can go on, you can't go on ad infinitum, but you could go on to make at least 150 different types of Psalms, okay, if you were going to break it down into minutiae. But there are some broad categories that I think are, are helpful, broad categories of, of Psalms. So, there are petitions, uh, which underneath petitions are sort of the, probably the largest group is a group of called laments. Everyone know what lament means? To, to mourn, to cry out to the Lord. Okay, for because you're you're so that's why it's under petition section. Petition is to, to ask the Lord for for something. And so especially if you're in trials, experiencing trials, persecution from enemies, then it's a lament. Uh, if you're experiencing the hand of the Lord heavy upon you, it's a it's a lament, okay, and, and you're asking the Lord why, or you're asking Him to move, remove it, or whatever it is. Uh, there's uh, songs of thanksgiving, okay, and that's quite self-explanatory, um, and praise as well. They're slightly different, so thanksgiving is more for specific requests that have been answered. Uh, and praise is more just for who God is. Okay. Um, you get uh, you get uh, penitential psalms. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So psalms of repentance. There are seven of them. Messianic Psalms. Now, I would argue they're all Messianic. Okay, but then there are those that are explicitly Messianic. Okay, that that are just can only be fulfilled by Christ. So remember, who, we've already said who wrote most of the Psalms. David. And who was David? Is the king. Okay, and so David's writing as a king. But then they're going to be fulfilled fully in, in Christ. Okay. But there are some that even at the time of David, it's clear this can't be David. Okay. So um, uh, you, you, they go beyond David. Okay. And so especially Psalms like Psalms 110 and Psalm 2, uh, they, they 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 point beyond. 
and Psalm 45, which I'll probably reference when we do Song of Solomon, but that's also a Messianic Psalm. Uh, then you get um, imprecatory psalms. Everyone know what imprecatory or imprecation is? It's a it's a curse. Okay, so we will look at one of those. We'll try and look at one of each of these, so you get an idea. But I just want us to look at Psalm one and two quickly before we break, because sorry, Psalm one and two. As I said, the, Psalm one is the gatekeeper. And well-known psalm. Remember I said one and two go together because in Scripture, this is another rhetorical device that's often used. It's called inclusio. It's not difficult, just add an N, inclusion. Okay? <laughs> and uh, it has the idea of brackets. Okay? So you'll have the same idea the beginning and at the end, or the sa even the same words at the beginning and at the end. Okay, and so the, 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 the biblical writers often use inclusio okay, as a device, so you know, okay, this is a pericope, this is a section, because it's bracketed off. So Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man, so it begins with blessing. Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all those, are all who take refuge in him, so this idea of blessing. Then there's repetition of an important sort of unique word. Verse 2 says, he meditates uh, on his law, he meditates day and night. Chapter uh, Psalm 2 verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Plot and meditate are the same Hebrew word. Okay. Um, so what does meditate mean? Biblically? Yes. Ponder, think about uh, what is Eastern meditation? Yes, empty your mind. So it's the opposite, okay? So, I mean, it sounds very nice, meditation, and it sounds Christian, doesn't it? It sounds, meditation sounds like a good Christian practice, and it is, but it, they're, they're totally uh, antithetical. The one is empty in your mind, and the other one is full in your mind. As God's people, we should, that's what the psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, etc. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. So it's full in your mind with God's word. What do the wicked do? They also fill their mind with what? How can we get rid of God? How can we break his, his bands? Okay, so let's look at verse 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. If you had to break, had to put that into one of the three categories for Hebrew parallelism, which one would you put it in? Verse 1. Climactic. Yeah, definitely. So you can see that. It's beautiful, isn't it, the image? So it's walking uh, in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of the scornful. If you're walking in town and you see something interesting, you stop. You stand. If it's going on for longer, you try and look for a chair, don't you? <laughs> so, uh, 
advice, if you adversity, it's nice. There's benches and you can stop and, and sit. So, but you see the progression. Okay, it's one thing to walk, but now you're actually stopping. Now you're actually sitting, and and that's that's the idea. You're becoming more settled in the way of wickedness, so that finally you're sitting with mockers. Okay, so it's one thing to walk in the counsel of the wicked. So you know the counsel of the wicked is like, oh, no man, just. Just tell your parents you're coming to my place and then when we go to the club, okay, just lie to them, it's not a big thing. Or just do that, yeah, just do, just do. Okay. Now that's one thing, of course, it's evil and sinful. But you continue on that path and then you reach the place where you're actually sitting down with people who blaspheme the Lord, who mock Christianity, who mock the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a matter of they're, they're, they're doing some lying and stealing and some bad stuff. They're actually now, they're They've set their heads against the Lord. And they mock Him. They mock Christianity. They, they, they mock God. And so there's this progression. And the happy man is not like that. Okay. <coughs> but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law he meditates day and night. So the blessed man is the one who delights himself in the Word of God. So remember law here. Law can mean the Ten Commandments. It all depends on context. It can mean the Ten Commandments. It can mean first five books of the Bible, it can mean the whole of the Old Testament, it can mean just the Mosaic Covenant, you've got to find out from context. But certainly law will include, I think he's talking here about God's Word, uh, but certainly it will include the Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Now it's very interesting because you'll have people who say that Mosaic system was a covenant of works, Okay, it's a horrible system. Praise God for the new covenant. That's a horrible system. This is a wonderful. But if you're going to take that position, then you can't. How could you delight in it? You couldn't. Okay. But he does. He delights in the law of God. And so it's the same for us. We should delight in God's law. Okay. And God says, no, this is how you should behave. It might, we're not saying it's easy, but we should still delight in it. Okay. Uh, we should delight in, in the... The, the liberating law, and it is liberating. The, the opposite, the contrast is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is more on a corporate level, though. Psalm 1 is about the individual, the righteous individual and the wicked individual. Psalm 2 is corporate. But the corporate, the wicked, saying, how can we break these bands? So they see the law, they see God's commands as frustrating and inhibiting. And they want to break them. Okay, and they think that they'll be truly free. Isn't that what people think? If we can get rid of God's laws, we'll be free and we can have real fun. Okay. Uh, well, that's like a, a train saying, I just wish I could be free of these railway tracks. Okay. What's going to happen to that train if it gets off the railway tracks? It's just going to plow into the ground, isn't it? Okay. It's going to end in disaster. God has given us wonderful parameters that, that liberate it. We mustn't see them as negative. It's it's for the train, the railway lines are fantastic. They can move freely up and down exactly where they're supposed to go. And so the law is for us. It's, it's what it means to be truly human, to live within those parameters. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's liberating. We should delight in it. That person is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. It's literally canals. Okay. Um, but the idea is, he has a tree that was in the wilderness, 
in a desert, an arid, dry place, and he's planted. Because okay, it has the word planted. It's not just a tree that grew there. It's been moved there next to these, these rivers, these canals. And that's what salvation is, isn't it? God took you and me out of a terrible, dry desert. And he planted us, took us out of darkness into light. And he's put us next to living waters. We get to receive water. This picture of a tree receiving water. Uh, it's going to bear fruit in season. Okay, because it's got it's got life-giving water, so it bears fruit. The child of God, the righteous person, bears fruit. Their leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Okay, and so now you, um, we see there, verse three. It's a simile, isn't it? He is like a tree. Then verse four just says, "The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away." Now, this is the beauty of poetry as well. You see how he's spent quite a lot of, of lines describing the righteous person. You have the idea, just in the length of permanence and solidity, when he gets to the wicked, it's just, the wicked are not so, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. So even in just being, being um, uh, brief with the wicked and spending time with the righteous, even in the way it's formed, you get the idea of, the wicked will stand, they will remain, they are permanent, whereas, sorry, the righteous and the wicked will just... Chaff is useless, okay, and that's the reality. Wicked people are useless. Okay. What do you do with chaff? Burn it. Okay. And so outside of the Lord, a person's life has no meaning, it's purposeless, it's useless, it's a waste of time. Okay. Only good for judgment any good to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says as well. The wicked are made for what? For a great life to make lots of money. The wicked are made for one thing. The day of judgment. Okay. So, very powerful psalm, but very liberating for the child of God. Our lives have meaning and purpose. Okay. Uh, we, we are, we, we are doing what we're supposed to do. We are created to worship the true and living God. Okay, to love His law and to, uh, to to live within those parameters which set us free to be truly human. So uh, we have permanence, we have stability, we we have security, but the, not the wicked. Okay, and then he, he just goes on to speak about final judgment. Psalm two speaks about the nations, and then it goes on to speak about Christ. But just before that, because they're trying to, they say, let's get rid of these these bonds, and listen to verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Okay. One of the most frightening passages of scripture, to me anyway. Um, I mean, we know, imagine a little ant looking up at you and waving his little leg at you. Okay. You would also laugh. I mean, you're laughing now. Because you think, well, it's so stupid. I'll just... <laughs> and that's the idea. Pierre's man... The kings of the earth, the most powerful people on the planet, waving their little fists at, at God. Now it's a laugh, not of, of, you know, good comedy or something like that. It's, and I'm not going to say sinister because God is not sinister, but it's, it's frightening, isn't it? Because it, it's, it's absolutely of no effect to God, and He's just going to wipe them out. Uh, he's going to destroy them unless 
Okay, how's he, what's he done? He says, I've established my king. Okay, who is that? Christ on my holy hill. And this king, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to, he's going to get the nations as an inheritance. Now that's happening right now. Matthew 28, isn't it? The nations are being gathered as the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Okay. So he has the warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Verse 10. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <coughs> so, as you come to a king, I mean, you've seen in the movies, how do you come? You come down and you come and kiss the ring. That's the idea of submission. You are my king. I submit to you. And it's very interesting, just to do a biblical theology of kisses. <laughs> uh, there's really two types of kiss, aren't there? There's the most infamous kiss. Betrayal. Okay, and Judas. So, it's a challenge. What type of kiss do you give the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you come in submission, owning him as your king? Saying, you are the great king. God has established you. I yield to you. Uh, you own me. That's what one of the themes. As I said, David wrote them. It's about kingship. It's about the true king who's coming. Okay. Uh, and why do people hate that? Because we want to be autonomous and independent. We don't want someone to rule over us. But he is a good king. And we need him. Okay, so that's the entrance. And this is really wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is famous for two paths. Okay, you're going to see that clearly in Proverbs. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. And it begins like that. And uh, the consequences are laid out for us. And then we're going to see what it means to live a godly life. And the difficulties that we face. And the joys that we, we experience as well. Okay, let me stop there. Unless there any questions or comments. Yes. I have a comment. I think it's really interesting the first song, the first verse. You know the progression and the climatic style that the man first walks in his death. It's, it's exactly like the is very progressive. Yes. I, re I remember hearing a story about some pastor. He was very famous and he was he was like exposed to have some sexual scandal in the church. Mm -hmm. But then some guy uh, remarked that you know, it's the first time we're seeing it in public, but it's probably the hundredth time he's doing it in private. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's always progressive and that's really interesting to me. Definitely. Okay, let's have a quick break.